Good morning. Man, it's good to, to sing together um, and to rejoice in God together, uh, for he is good to us. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I'm excited to continue on in our study of the book of 1 Peter today. You know, the, the ending of something really impacts how you view it. And when I was a kid, I was a, a big sports fan. I mean, I'm still a big sports fan. Um, but I was meticulous about recording sporting events. Um, and I was, man, kids, you, you didn't get this stage of technological existence. Uh, but you could do some wicked things with a VCR. I mean, you could, you could make it work for you. Um, and I would, I would record every game of a seven-game NBA Finals. And I, I mean, like the pregame, the whole thing. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I thought the NBA was employing me as a historian or what. Uh, if only 12-year-old me knew that that was all going to be on YouTube one day, um, maybe I wouldn't have tried so hard. Uh, but I remember if after recording the, these se- entire series, if my team lost, it was like, forget about it. It was, man, just don't put a label on it. Record the next episode of Quantum Leap on that one, and let's press on. Um, and as it's amazing how the end shades everything else. And as Christians, we need a clear view of the end. What we believe about the end is going to shape the way we live today. God's word doesn't disappoint us here either. It tells us of the eternity that awaits us. Christ's second and future Advent, the new heavens, the new earth, our eternal joy that will be there, all of it. And without these, we'll have a malformed view of right now. And if for you, the future is one of hopelessness, one of futility, one of great unsurety and chaos, you'll live a life that's shaped by that reality, a life of anxiety and fear, one without confidence or peace. Ah, but if you know the ending, the coming kingdom, the resurrected king, the place where sufferings of today won't compare with the eternal weight of glory, that these sufferings will be gone, but the glory there will be great. If you can trust in that ending, then the now, this, this life, your very moment now, will be transformed. So I think this is what Peter is urging us toward today. If you want to know how to live now, look ahead. In the words of the great songwriter David Wilcox, start with the ending. It's the best place to begin. So today, uh, we're going to listen as Peter tells us uh, that the end is near. And because the end is near, here's four things I think this text is going to compel us to do. Number one, to sober up and pray. Number two, to love well. Number three, to welcome others. And lastly, to leverage it all. Let me pray for us. Father, would you, would you help us? Uh, we so much need your spirit at work in us. We are dull of ears. We can be cold of heart. And the truth of your word and the power of your spirit is what we need to wake us, 
to empower us, to embolden us to walk as children of the light. So would you help us today? Father, we need you. We want to know you. Even where we are, even where we are distracted, Father, would you draw us by your grace to you? We pray this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. So he begins in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Man, that's a chipper way to start a conversation. The end of all things is near. The end is here. Uh, This is the exact sort of thing we would expect to see uh, in a movie where the alien invasion has just begun. Uh, right, or the meteor is hurtling towards earth and everyone's running around crazy, right? But there's the one guy on the street corner, disheveled, older guy, standing with the cardboard sign, right? That he's scrawled on in his own Sharpie that says, the end is near. And in our, in our pop culture kind of world, that's, that's the crazy guy. Um, but, but in our faith, as we walk with the Lord, we believe that the end is near. Um, And we believe crazier things than that. He says, the end is near. And I think this idea strikes at our own laziness, at our own complacency. Our, yeah, yeah, Jesus is coming back, yada, yada, theology. This ambiguous world is not going on in ambiguity forever, said Charles Cranfield, the, the British theologian. The reality is one day, this act is going to come to a close. The play will be over. The curtain will fall. Ah, but then act two will come crashing in. History will end. Its course will be brought to a stop. But you see, the end is the goal. The end is not something to dread. The end is what makes the now make sense. Without the last day, none of our days make any sense. But why is that the goal? Because it really isn't the end. Until act one is complete, act two can't begin. Act one is beautiful, broken but beautiful, suffering and yet great hope. But the king who came in humility at the climax of the first act, he took the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death. Don't doze off because in act two, he comes back in glory. There's no flower without the dirt. There's no tree without the death of the seed. And there's no new earth without the death and the resurrection of the king. So, Christian, this is not a statement of dread. Yes, judgment is coming. The end is a fearful thing for those who are not in Christ. For them, there will be no refuge. There will be no place to hide. All must choose in this life whether to submit to Jesus or trust their own righteousness. But for us, for the children of God, Those with Christ's record applied to our account, the end is not destruction. It's not fearful. It's no more destruction than a wedding is the destruction of engagement. No, the end is the consummation. The end is the marriage and the feast at the supper of the Lamb. The end is the return of King Jesus and the kingdom he brings. So if you're afraid of the end, maybe today you're you're fearful. Look to Jesus. Have you asked him to forgive you? Have you asked him to be your refuge? He will be. If your hope is in him as the end draws near, you are secure. So trust him today. And this is the consistent refrain of the New Testament, isn't it? Paul said in Romans 13, the night is nearly over and the day is near. 
So let's discard the deeds of darkness. Let's walk as in the daytime. And in 1 John 2, John says, little children, it's the last hour. It's this refrain. And even in the drama of the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus himself says, behold, I'm coming. When? Soon. And his people, the ones who hope in him, they, they, they shout back. They, they, we, we cry back to him, come, Lord Jesus. So here we are now, 1,900 years or so later, after these words were written. And so the question must be asked, have we missed him? Is history proving him wrong? Is the church wrong to have the expectation of the near return of Jesus? And I think the clear and biblical answer is no. The last chapter has begun. Jesus, Paul, Peter, they give us no dates scrawled in, in anywhere. Uh, and so whether let's, this epilogue lasts for a few years or a, a few thousand, the reality of the coming Christ is imminent. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, Peter will later say. He isn't slow. Neither in the thousand years or the thousand plus years of, 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 from the garden until the incarnation of Jesus, those thousands of years, or, or now in the nearly 2,000 years uh, since the ascension of the one uh, who, who will one day come again in glory. God's timing isn't mine. History is like a breath to him. So the weight disproves nothing. Any more than Israel's weight disproved Christ's first coming. But be sure of this today, Christian. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, these are, are battle blows against death, and they have already been struck. The victory is secure. And the rest of our struggling here is merely a dress rehearsal for the end. And with each groan of the creation, death is already on the ropes. With each calamity, each stumble being a reminder that death itself will soon fall to the canvas. And that's the promise that Act 2 is still to come. That the creation will be reborn. The new birth, the new life, all of it is to come. Do you believe that? I think it's, I think it's safe to say that, that many Christians live, and I'm going to use a big word, but that, that we live as eschatological agnostics. We say we believe in the return of Jesus and the, the eschaton, the, the, the eternity that is to come. But functionally, we operate as though none of it is real, as though we're immortal and the ideas of eternity are fiction. So how would we actually believe? What would it actually look like if we believed Jesus' return was imminent? Will we be like the servants that are waiting at the gate when the master returns, looking for his return? as Jesus tells that parable, or, or will he find us asleep, unprepared for the end? Charles Spurgeon said this about uh, eternity. He said, time is short, eternity is long. It is only reasonable but th that this short life be lived in the light of eternity. So Peter says, therefore, because the end is near, because victory is secure for, your, for you, here's the life, here's the resultant life of such uh, a belief. And he's going to give us four marks uh, of that life. And I love that these are basically, the, the life that he's going to describe, it's basically a reversal of, of the last text that we looked at last week. It's, it's a reversal of the list of sins that he, that he mentioned. You used to be these things, 
But here's the new life now. Here's the life that looks and that lives in light of uh, in light of the age to come. So he flips them on her head, and instead of drunkenness, the believer is sober-minded. Instead of lust, there's love. Instead of carousing, our homes are filled with hospitality. Rather than idolatry, there's ministry that brings honor and worship to the Lord. The hopeless life that was once lived for the here and now is fully now aware that the end is near. And so he's going to give us four ways to live in this. So number one, sober up and pray. Be alert and sober-minded for prayer, he says at the end of verse 7. This seems to be kind of one thought, be alert and sober-minded. Uh, kind of two words. He's saying you used to live in this, this fog, this, this uh, state of fog and drunkenness, but by God's grace, you're awake now. You belong to Jesus. So, so be alert, sober up. So, so what, is this, what do these words mean? So uh, be alert. Uh, this is just be under control. Be ready to move. Be awake and then be sober-minded. Uh, I, I think this is an, an interesting expression uh, we actually see this, this expression throughout the New Testament, um, and, and including place and descriptions of church leaders. Um, though it's not a phrase that we use a lot, to be sober of mind. Uh, but, but it just means to be in your right mind. To put plainly, it just means to, to be settled to, to the point that you rightly see yourself and rightly see the Lord. I haven't spent much time uh, drunk, but I did go to LSU um, I could have said your like other college names, but I went there, and we know that they, they can do it. Um, and from my observation, uh, drunk folks tend to fancy themselves as pretty funny. Uh, sometimes they fancy themselves as good at other things, as good at singing. Sometimes they think themselves to be quite attractive. In fact, they have a fairly inflated view of a lot of things that they set their minds to do. But when the next day rolls around, as sobriety comes in, what happens? Suddenly there's a more sober view of things. Maybe I wasn't quite as funny as I thought I was being. Uh, maybe that wasn't quite as impressive of a feat as I thought it was. They begin to see themselves, right? So, with a sober mind, you see yourself. No longer through glasses colored by alcohol, uh, but with greater precision, greater accuracy. One of the works of God's Spirit in His children is a sobriety of self. By God's grace, you see yourself. But the sober mind doesn't only have an accurate view of self. The sober mind is seeing a lot of things clearly. A sober-minded Christian is serious about their sin, not for the purpose of self-condemnation. No, the sober-minded Christian sees the glory of God more clearly and knows rightly the need for a savior. I think Isaiah chapter 6, I think, embodies uh, what, what the sober mind looks like. Isaiah said this. He said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings, and two, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah is sobering up kind of quickly here to the holiness, the otherworldliness of God, the hugeness of God. And check out what he says in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, 
For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. This, this is sober-mindedness, right? Isaiah sees God rightly for who he is. And in doing so, he comes face-to-face with his own frailty, his own inadequacy. And what does he do? He doesn't run. He, he cries out to God. He prays. He confesses his sin. He surrenders himself later in the text for God's use. And so it is with us. Be alert. See yourself rightly in light of the Lord and let it drive you to him, to the one that you need. Go to him. Pray to him. He will receive you. Secondly, because the end is near, we we love well. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, Maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. So when we have a sober view of ourselves and a right view of God and and the truth of the gospel, we're compelled now by Christ's love of us, able to love as he loved. He loved us, knowing I know myself, and it's amazing that he loved me, so now I can love. Now I can see others rightly. Paul Paul hits this same note in Romans 12, starting in verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly. That's the same word, sober-mindedly. As God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Sensibly. So sober-mindedly, see yourself and others. You're not the only one that God has saved. See them in the same light. And when you do this, he said a a few verses later in verse 10, he says, when you see people this way, you'll be able to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. You'll be able to take the lead in honoring one another. It's amazing how well we love when we are not obsessed with winning. When we're not obsessed with keeping the upper hand, with looking righteous, with having our way, and this is what happens when love is compelled by a sober mind, and by the love of God that has come to us. Maintain a persistent, a constant love. This is not a seasonal love. This isn't doesn't ebb and flow. It stands in rocky and in turbulent times. Do you know friends who, who are in tremendous pain right now, who are in suffering? Persist in a compassionate love to them. Do you have a friend who wavers when life gets difficult? Persist in patient love. Do you have friends who, who wrong you, who forget you? Persist in a love that is forgiving. Love that wavers amidst the, yeah, but they... That's not love. Why? Because Peter reminds, reminds us, love covers a multitude of sins. So what, is, what does this mean? This is, this is wild, that love covers a multitude of sins. It seems like this could mean a couple of things. For it, first, it, it could mean persistently love so that you'll be ready to forgive people over and over. Uh, it also could mean maintain consistent, persistent love because God's love covers sin for you. And I think both of those things are true. Uh, but it seems like Peter is pointing to us, to the way we love. And I think this, this echoes Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, you may know this proverb. It says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. In other words, where there's conflict, where there's suffering, one without love is like gunpowder. Right? You know that person. Maybe you are that person. Conflicts, conflicts are escalated. 
Small disagreements become major ones. Minor offenses become, are, are made much of. But the person of love, this person walks into the middle of a conflict, into the middle of suffering, and he or she de-escalates, diffuses the situation. Tensions are cooled, not inflamed. An explosion was looming, the relationship ready to be fractured, shrapnel about to fly, but the man of woman or woman of love brings covering. It covers sin. This doesn't always mean forgiveness, though at times it will be required, but constant love within the Christian community, it covers sin. And here's how it refuses to allow sin to have its fullest, most destructive outcome. It's the kind of love that says, no, I'm going to do everything in my power to prevent strife and hatred from winning the day. Paul calls it long-suffering or forbearing. This sort of love points everyone involved to the love of Jesus. And when this kind of love is expressed, many sins are covered. Hate and relational demolition are thwarted. Even cycles of of pain and hateful words are, are shut down by someone who is loving, who steps into a situation. I've seen this with my own children, right? An argument erupts. doesn't matter what the the subject of the argument. Emotions begin to spiral out of control. Blaming, yelling, crying, board game pieces flying, right? And sometimes they need a detective. That's what they need. They need the detective to walk in and go, let me assess the situation and see who's at fault here. Who's to blame? Who's Who's the guilty party? But often what they really need, what they truly need, is for someone to step in, even better yet, for one of them to step up and say, hey, do we love one another? Do you not love your sister, your brother? Then as one who loves them, now speak. Now have a conversation in love. It's this sort of love that doesn't look over Uh, and doesn't pass over offenses. It doesn't ignore them, but it refuses to respond in kind. And this love will always bring, I guess the question is, will this love always bring peace, always bring unity, always bring reconciliation? Certainly not. Sadly, because of sin, there are times where we fail to act in this sort of love. Other times, though, we seek uh, others in love, a brother or sister will persist in sin or refuse to be reconciled. They'll, they will inflame the situation. And this is why Peter commands in chapter 3 that we return blessing for insult. The Christian community will only survive and thrive as, as long as we are prepared to be wronged and ready to forgive. There is, is no community where sin will not be present. We have to kill dreams like that. But where sin abounds in our midst, may, by God's grace, grace abound all the more through us. If we're going to love people to really love them, I'm not talking like Sunday morning, fist bump, handshake sort of love. I'm talking about truly entering into others' lives, warts and all. Then there's going to be much to forgive. This is what we really want too, right? Like this is the kind of life we want. Not the fake stuff, not the surface stuff, not... Not just the facade. We want the real thing. But guess what? The real you requires real forgiveness. So just like Adam and Eve, they needed covering for their sin and God's love was at work to cover them. We now, as God works through us, cover one another's sins. 
by his grace. We don't atone for their sin, but love covers a multitude. And then number three, because the end is near, we welcome others. He says in verse nine, be hospitable to one another without complaining. So love and forgive each other and now welcome each other. I I love that hospitality makes the cut. And not just hospitality, but hospitality with no complaining. Not a suggestion, not an imperative. Be hospitable to one another. Um, And I I think I had heard this a lot, and you may have heard this, and it's true, that much of the New Testament speaks of hospitality in terms of welcoming the outsider, welcoming the the, the non-believer. And that, that is true. But here, that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying be hospitable to one another. Christian brothers and sisters, welcome. Give everything to each other, whether, whether warm feelings are there or not. Even when people are difficult, this is a hospitality birthed out of love. So the church is to be a refuge, a refuge for the lost, yes, but we are to be a refuge for one another, a safe place. We are to be family. Peter says a spiritual house being built up. And, and it's, it's not convenient, is it? You do want to complain about the amount of time and money. What it costs for other people to be in your space, to take up your schedule. Man, I'm busy. I, it's, this is my time. I just need to rest. I just want to watch Netflix. Haven't even finished one show. Can you not call right now? But Peter's saying to them and to us, don't complain. Why? Because if you are sober-minded about your own need, you're going to recognize Jesus answered the phone. He welcomed you, and he welcomes that brother or that sister, no matter how needy, so that you might be able to do the same. The gospel means I'm not the one who has it all together. I'm not the hero in the story. And here comes my brother or my sister with all their problems and all their needs. That's not the story. The, the, the story is that we have problems, we have need, and because of Christ, I am also destitute. I also have no hope of fixing myself, no hope of provision. I was without nourishment. I was naked before my Savior. I had no covering for my sin, and Christ clothed me. His grace covered me. He fed me with his grace. He filled me with his spirit. And so now this brother, this sister that I want to complain about, they are me. We are family together. They're sinners just like me, fellow recipients of this grace. So what could I possibly complain about? The Lord, by his grace, he has knit us together. He's made us family, you and me. He's forged us. As individual stones, he's, he's built us up. He is building us up into a spiritual house. And so now your needs are mine. Whatever goods I have, whatever you have, we are welcomed into each other. So there's, there's nothing uh, that separates me, that makes me more important. How could, how could I then withhold things? How could I close off my life from others? Paul said of the, uh, to the church in, Thessalon- in Thessalonica, uh, in First Th- Thessalonians 2, he said, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd come so dear to us. And with no building to gather in, the, the fellowship hall of the early church was the home. 
They shared their lives together. And even now, though we have a building, though we can gather together in a space like this, and though we're excited about all the opportunities a facility like this affords us to, to reach out into our community, to minister to others, nothing's really changed. The front door of the body of Christ is not those two glass doors uh, in the lobby. The front door is your porch. The front door is your dinner table. Redeemer Church's Fellowship Hall is your living room, your dining room. It's my back porch. It's all of our cell phone minutes. Will you welcome one another? And then lastly, if my home and my time belong to my brothers, my sisters, what about other gifts God's given me? Number four, we, we want to leverage it all. Because the end is near, we want to leverage it all. Verse 10, just as each one received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. The whole is designed to benefit from the blessings of each part. Some of us hear that, especially in, in this day and age, and we go, oh, that sounds like communism. No, it sounds like a body. Whatever gift you have, use it for us. Use it for others. God has made us this way. Paul, Paul said this, and he elaborated on this in 1 Corinthians 12, when he talked about how the body has many parts, and, and, and we're one in Christ as, one, as part of the same body. And then in verse 14 of that chapter, he says, Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body... It's not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But, that, but as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in one body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, as it is there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but the members would have the same concern for each other. And it's funny, we, we, we hear and I think have historically talk about this passage in terms of, man, you've got a gift. Like, find your gift. You're, you're important. You're part of the body. We need you. Um, but I, I think... The, the even greater thing here is the gift you have we is ours. It's for, all, it's for us all. You are an ear. You have the gift of hearing. That, that hearing isn't yours. What a very strange thing that would be. No, hearing is for the body. And just as the body is ruled by the head, Christ rules the church, and each of our gifts carry out a function for one another. We, we speak of this in other like tangible ways, right? One, one part of the body grieves. We all feel it. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one part has a gift, we all are beneficiaries. This isn't simply the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts that, that Scripture lists out, though it certainly includes those. This is, this is even broader. This is any gift. Any gift of grace that's come to you from God, it wasn't just for you. Whatever you have, it came from God, and it's to be used for him, to bless his people, to proclaim his glory to those who don't know him. And I think often our, our discussion of these gifts 
it's really more about us. It's almost like we're describing, like, you know, these spiritual gift personality quizzes, right? Um, it, it's, like, it's like we are building our own spiritual gifts resume um, and just adding them to the list. It's like, we, you know, like someone who walks into the room announces their zodiac sign, right? Um, I'm an EFNJ, I'm a three-wing five, I'm a Scorpio, and I've got the gift of mercy and teaching. No, our gifts, rather God's gifts to us, they are not about us. They are not yours. They're his. They're about God. They're for God. And guess what you get to do with them? You just get to be a steward of them. They aren't yours. They belong to God. His gifts, his varied gifts have come to you as an expression of his grace. And they, you can't boil them down to answers on a quiz. When God's people steward his many gifts in the, in the, in the function within a body, the community becomes a dynamic place. All serving, all using their gifts to honor and glorify the Savior. We are not procurers of God's grace, building a, a nice collection of gifts from God. No, whatever you have is his. And so now how could you possibly withhold from God's other children whom he loves? He says, if anyone speaks, it's the words of God. If you serve, it's God's strength. What else are you going to do with God's strength? Serve yourself? What else are you going to do with God's words? Glorify yourself? And any gift you have, any gift that I have, is a gift of grace. It's purchased on the cross. It's empowered by the Spirit. And just like the servant uh, in the parable of the talents, when Jesus tells the story, we are in the management business. We're stewarding God's gifts. We manage them. He's allowed us to play. He's put us into the game. And the skills we have, the resources, the talents, the funds, the house, the vehicle you have, the vacation time you have, the strong back and legs that you have to carry things, the steady hands you have to create, to hold babies, to serve food, to embrace someone, the mind that you have to ponder and understand, to steward his mysteries, his theological truth, so that you might teach, so that you might share of his wisdom with others. These gifts, they're all his. And you get to manage. You get to play. You get to use them. So how will you use the gifts God has given you? How will you edify his church? How will you pour into other saints? How will you proclaim him? Every capability, will you use it only for you to feed your comfort or will you open up your life? Jesus, the glorious one of heaven, he opened up his life, every part of him, and he gave you all of it. He leveraged his life for you. And so now, how will you use your house? What will you do with that bonus check? How will you use your possessions? How will you use your time? Where do you need to serve? How will you leverage everything that you have for God's glory? And lastly, when his gifts are on display this way, what happens? He says, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. The Lord Jesus is honored. He is made much of as his gifts are at work in his people by our love, by our hospitality, by our serving. As he has so loved us, as he has so gifted us, may we love one another. May we serve each other. 
And we long, we wait for that day when the curtains fall, when this chapter is over. But until then, we, we wait with eagerness for that forever praise of God that is coming. And to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so humbled. We are so, we are brought so low by the reality of your, your immensity, your otherness, how holy you are, how perfect you are, and yet that you would love us, that you would forgive us. Father, that your son would die and be resurrected for us. God, you have served us so faithfully, not because we deserved it, but because you are the preeminent one. You are, your mercy abounds. And so, Father, would you help us by your grace to be like you, to have mercy that abounds, to have forgiveness that, is, that multiplies, to give of ourselves, to leverage everything that we have, to serve those that you love and to make much of your name. We need your help in this. We pray all this in Christ's name.